Hello and welcome to The Leap of Faith. Well, we're well and truly into the Christmas spirit and already looking forward to being with you from 8 o'clock on Christmas morning here on RTE Radio 1. Well, on this evening's programme, while we in Ireland have no shortage of Christmas traditions, we find out about a Mexican Christmas and the nine days of celebration before Christmas Day. We'll also hear from Professor Cornelius Casey from the Loyola Institute and Trinity College in Dublin about a public event coming in 2020 that you might like to attend. Before that, you've most likely been listening to a variety of Christmas carols over the last few days and weeks, and maybe you've even sung one or two as part of a choir or church congregation. But did you know the fascinating story behind one of the most known and loved, Angels We Have Heard on High? Let's listen to the opening verse. To find out more, I'm joined in the studio this evening by composer and musician Michael Houlihan. Michael, welcome to The Leap of Faith. So I'm intrigued. What is the story? It's it's a fascinating story, really. Um, It's a story of a man called James Chadwick, who was born in Drada in 1813, of wealthy parents who were great linen and flax manufacturers, but were quite a religious couple and and very Catholic and were great supporters of the Augustinian Church and helped to build it in 1866. But James, one of their their bright sons, was actually sent to a private college um, in, in England, St Cuthbert's in Ushaw in Durham. Um, he went there as a, an adolescent, but it was one of these seminary uh, colleges. So he obviously decided he had a vocation and went on to become a theologian and a a very well-known and highly regarded priest. And um, in 1862, uh, he came across the French folk, Carl Les Anges dans nos compagnies, the angels are in our countryside. Mm. Armed with that and the uh, Gospel of St. Luke, he set about making four verses of angels we have heard on high which differed from the Anglican version, Angels from the Realm of Glory, which was written by Montgomery in around 1816. And that's the one that the Anglican Church would have used. So this was a new version with four verses following, as I said, the Gospel of St. Luke. But the one thing about Chadwick's version was that it was a simpler version in English, much easier to sing than some of the other versions. Hence, it has become one of the world's popular carols. And, uh, and I don't think many people would have known the Irish connection to it in the first place. No, no. He was born in, in a house called Eden View. And it is now, um, it's at near Mornington. It is now the Drogheda Grammar School, which once was in Lawrence Street, mm-hmm. which was, we all know the story, the destruction, but it moved then to Mornington. And the Chadwicks owned um, Eden View and they owned another house called the Glen. Frank, uh, James Chadwick's brother, the Archbishop's brother, owned uh, that. And then they also had involvement in um, Stamine. 
but um, the family had many religious vocations and um, they disappeared out of Drogheda life and um, I believe they retired to Bath in, in later and years. And the direct relation to their disappearance was their religious vocation. Yes, indeed. And um, if you're in the Augustinian Church in Drogheda, you will see um, in the stained glass windows overlooking the altar the coat of arms of the Chadwick family and the Archbishop Chadwick's um, parents are buried in the vaults in the Augustinian, along with the Gradwells, who helped to build the church. And Michael, for you as a composer and musician yourself, is there anything intriguing about angels we've heard on high? Yes. What is really strange about it is that it has this wonderful uh, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, mm. and that goes right back to the early church. And um, the Gloria that's used now, it's, it's what's called a, a sequenced piece of harmony which makes it a very logical but also very rousing piece and choirs love singing this uh, at Christmas time. It has this real kind of explosion of joy, the glory in excelsis. And um, when Chadwick was was putting angels together, like he had his words in English plus the Gloria, which goes back actually to the first century of the church. It's known as the Christmas chant of the first century of Telesophorus. And there's rather a nice story of a missed appointment. Yes, um, the Augustinian church, which had deteriorated as a building from the 1780s, was actually uh, rebuilt in 1866. And because of the Chadwick connection, James was asked to come and give the inaugural sermon as a famous theologian. But at the same time, wasn't he appointed and consecrated bishop? So he had to miss the appointment. He was actually consecrated bishop of Newcastle, Hexham and North East England. And he eventually did come home to perform the marriage of his niece in the old church at Mornington, which is now closed down. There's a modern church there now. So lovely Drogheda connections to a very well-known hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High. Michael Hoolan, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith as we leave you with some more of that wonderful Christmas hymn. Thank you, Michael. Next this evening, the Loyola Institute School of Religion at Trinity College in Dublin is dedicated to education and research in theology in the Catholic Christian tradition and regularly runs public events on a variety of topics. Professor Cornelius Casey from the Loyola Institute joins me now. Professor Casey, you have an interesting series coming up for 2020, starting in January. Yes, the first event is a a day-long colloquium uh, on Thursday, the 16th of January. It's titled Religious Literacy Challenges for Today, And there's a number of very interesting international speakers coming, as well as four speakers from Ireland. The issue really is one that everyone will be familiar with, that in today's Ireland there's much less religious literacy than would have been even a generation or two ago. 
In fact, one would say there is religious illiteracy characterises a great deal of Irish society today. But not many people have reflected on how this is actually a social problem, a social evil, if you like, as any illiteracy is. So there is a programme that is situated in Bologna in Italy, and the lead of that programme is Professor Alberto Maloney, and he is going to be a keynote speaker uh, at the conference on the 16th of January. There are two speakers coming from Sweden, which has a long tradition of reflecting on the challenges of religious illiteracy and particularly the legal consequences that there have been in Sweden, what they call the handshake problem. This was a case where a Muslim woman refused to shake hands with a figure and that led to uh, a legal conundrum that uh, led to a lot of reflections. We've been very, very interesting. Similar problems, of course, have arisen in England with Sikhs wearing uh, the turban and, of course, the famous uh, scarf issue uh, in France. Mm. We don't quite have the same problem in Ireland manifesting itself at that level, but there is no doubt that religious illiteracy is growing and that means that when you talk about religion, indeed any religion today, you're talking in a context of what one might call profound religious illiteracy, meaning that the language, the intellectual framework, the reference of religion is not well known at all. And this can lead to a great deal of unfortunate consequences. So I hear two sides to what you're presenting to us. One is an illiteracy in relation to other people's faith and their practices, but there's also one in relation to a person's own faith. I think precisely that's exactly uh, pointing out the problem and, and unless one is literate about one's own faith you can assume that you know what it is. I, I know an awful lot of commentators including indeed media commentators who perhaps have been brought up as Catholics but they're no longer interested in uh, a Catholic faith but they will always presume that they know what uh, Catholicism is, or indeed Anglicanism or any of the other religions as well. And that's a dangerous assumption because actually it doesn't represent what people, uh, Anglicans or Christians generally, really think about the issues uh, that concern us. So, Well, it's one of the objectives we have for this programme is to increase that literacy, but we also find out that there are people who will say to us they don't have the opportunity to learn. In other words, they're not getting it on, on, a, on a regular basis or indeed from any basis. I think you're exactly right there again. You see, I think a lot of, um, let us say, churches uh, or indeed other religions as well have not noticed how seriously uh, declined uh, is re- uh, religious literacy. Uh, their focus has more or less been on a catechetical program in the early years, but that is no longer culturally yeah. adequate for the... The little green catechism is long gone, I suppose. <laughs> but I'm thinking exactly, about, yeah, yeah. But your, with your insight from the point of view of the Catholic Christian tradition, mm. was there not a, an idea that uh, knowledge of the religion was left to the clergy and for the lay people then they simply followed? I think, again, you're uh, profoundly right. And, of course, that church is gone. The church that is led by the clergy uh, uh, and the laity following is the church of yesterday. It's the church of tomorrow that needs to be engaged with the challenges of religious illiteracy. And, you know, I would say exactly the same thing uh, from the Muslim community and the other Christian communities. We need to develop religious literacy within our communities in order to be able to express it 
in the public square. Mm-hmm. And the public square, which is defined including media and, 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 and political public square, needs to be aware that there is a listening job, not an assuming job. You, to just to simply assume that I know what Catholicism is and I know what Catholics stand for on any of the major issues is a serious mistake. And I would say, on the whole, religious illiteracy is a social evil, just as any other form of illiteracy is a social evil. But it's one unrecognized. And the aim of the colloquium on January the 16th is to heighten awareness of this very current phenomenon among us and to reflect uh, on how one can go forward with it. And if we've piqued somebody's interest, is this open to the public? This is absolutely open to the public and it's designed for the public who are interested in the issues of religious literacy on the one hand and the phenomenon, growing phenomenon of religious illiteracy on the other hand. It can be booked on Eventbrite and uh, the details are online as well. We'll put them on our webpage as well for you. Uh, Professor Cornelius Casey, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith and the best of luck with the events that you plan for 2020. Thank you very, very much, Michael. Next, I should mention a lovely programme this Sunday evening here on RTE Radio 1 at half past seven. It's there on almost every Christmas card featuring the scene of Christ's birth. It's a staple character in every school nativity play and artists from Titian to Bruegel have immortalised it in their paintings of that night in Bethlehem. The donkey. And for the flight into Egypt, in almost every depiction, it's the faithful donkey that carries Mary and the Christ child, often with Joseph walking alongside. But look at the Gospel accounts of Christ's birth and early childhood, and you may be surprised. There's no donkey. So how has this much-loved seasonal character entered Christmas lore, and why has the donkey remained a favourite Christmas staple ever since? In a festive programme, Jane Little goes in search of the Christmas donkey and its real-life descendants today. I don't think the donkey is a complete figment in biblical terms because they had to get there. Mary and Joseph needed some form of transport and the kinds of transport that were available in those days were camel or horse or donkey or cart drawn by an animal. And if you look at the fact that Mary and Joseph were really quite poor, they were not wealthy, we know that from the sacrifices they gave in the temple, it was more than likely that they did travel by donkey. But, she says, it was probably St Francis of Assisi, that most famous of animal lovers, who first introduced a live donkey into the celebrations of Christmas when he recreated the nativity scene in 13th century Italy. There was a cave and he had live animals surrounding this cave, including a donkey. And it became such a feature that it began to actually move through Christendom. And ever since then, we've celebrated the Nativity and there's been a donkey there. So it catches on because there's something about the nature of the donkey that is quite winsome and attractive and and engaging with people. And you can hear that programme this Sunday evening at half past seven here on RTE Radio 1. Finally this evening... Las Posadas are the nine days of annual Christmas celebrations that culminate with a big celebration on Christmas Eve in Mexico. Many 
Cecilia Gamas from UCC joins me from the RT Cork studios to talk about this more. Cecilia, what's your connection to Cork and Mexico? Well, I came to Cork for the first time in 2001. And I started volunteering with the Center of Mexican Studies at UCC. My boyfriend then thought it was the best way to show me that Cork wasn't that small compared to Mexico City, I guess. Although Mexico City is a very big place. Now, you will be heading back very shortly to Mexico for Christmas. And what we thought would be curious to find out is what's the special celebrations that happen in Mexico in the nine days before Christmas Eve? We call them posadas, that the translation is inns, basically. It uh, recreates the journey that Joseph and Mary had to do to Bethlehem before the birth of Jesus. And in the procession, we have Mary and Joseph and sometimes an angel. But uh, we divide the group of the procession in one or two groups. But normally we sing the ones that are outside, that would be Joseph and Mary. They would ask for shelter singing. And people that is inside a house, they will reply back. Uh, two or three attempts, they are denied the shelter, and in the third attempt, they are welcomed into the house. When that happens, the people in the house offers food, sweets, and drinks to the pilgrims. Now, I think we have an opportunity to actually hear some of that music right now. Good. So that's the music, which is, as you say, very much an integration of not only Mexican culture, but the Catholic culture as well. How was that integrated over the years? Well, I think it was a way to... The Spanish tried to show that religion wasn't as different as the traditions that the native people had. So we have a strong woman. Um, Our indigenous goddess, very strong. Mary is mother of um, of the divine word and is the same in uh, some indigenous goddesses that uh, they gave birth to a strong and good gods. So it was kind of a way to mix both traditions. But also it was a way to teach them by singing. So part of that, uh, the lyrics of the posadas that you play said, for example, eh, mi esposa es María, es reina del cielo, y madre va a ser del divino verbo. That in English means, my wife is María, queen of heaven, and she's going to be mother of the divine word. So by singing it, the indigenous people would be learning a little bit of Catholicism without feeling too forced, I guess. To, to learn about it. There is one aspect of Mexican culture that I think has found its way over to this part of the world, certainly with children's uh, parties, is the piñata. And yet it's very much associated with these few days before Christmas. Yep, yeah. The piñata itself has to be a lovely star with seven points. 
each point is related to a scene. So basically, it means that evil gets dressed very nicely to attract you. So you have to hit it blindfolded. So the person that hits it blindfolded and breaks the piñata gets a reward. That are the sweets and the fruits that are inside the piñata. And there's a song that's sung while hitting the piñata. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It basically you sing something like hit it, hit it, hit it. Dale, dale, dale. No pierdas el tino. Porque si lo pierdes, pierdes el camino. So basically in English is in English is hit, hit, hit it. Don't f- don't lose your focus because or your objective because if you lose it you will lose your path it's like you have to be sure what you want to do and to do not get detoured by evil now we mentioned that you are heading home to mexico for christmas what are you most looking forward to oh um i think the seasonal fruits um and the sweets um the food that we prepare for Christmas. I think it's it's very different. Um, we have sugar cane, for example, and we have peanuts. And they taste very different to the ones that you can get here in the supermarket. And during the posadas, normally you gather with friends and you have the piñata and you sing the posada and then you have some food that you only prepare for Christmas. One of those, for example, are buñuelos that are tortillas made of white flour. They are deep fried and then you cover it with cinnamon and sugar. And I don't know, I think they bring me back to my childhood. I'm curious, is there anything that you're bringing back to Mexico from Irish Christmases? Not really. Uh, <laughs> once, one year I tried to bring, well not me, my husband tried to bring um, crackers and they were confiscated at the airport. <laughs> oh <dear. laughs> Yeah, and and what about Christmas pudding? Has that travelled? Yeah, yeah, he has done that, but uh, I don't think it's. Uh, I don't know. We we have a very sweet tooth, but I don't know why we don't really like Christmas pudding. <laughs> <laughs> Cecilia, you mentioned things like tamales and enchiladas, but there's the turkey is actually something that Mexicans would claim to own. Yeah, but it's very different, like the one that you normally cook here in Europe. In Mexico, you roast it. It's more like a chicken, but they are very big. They are huge. And you roast it like a chicken uh, and you cover it in mole sauce. That is that sauce that people think is weird because it's made of several chiles. And you add chocolate to it. Chocolate. This yeah. is the phrase holy moly, doesn't yeah. it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it sounds weird, but uh, once that you taste it. Well, I think it's an acquired taste. Uh, you cover it with mole, and that can be part of the Christmas dinner. Yeah. What is the role of faith in Mexico now and its presence? I think it's it's thin always. Um, we mixed a lot of paganism with Catholicism, so I wouldn't say it's too strong. However, you will have people that still attend church every Sunday, but they enjoy the Day of the Dead celebrations. For us, there's not that division about that. I think um, at this point of our history when we are fighting against drug cartels and the economy, it's getting very hard. Um, Attending 
a, a religious service. Not It doesn't have to be Catholic, but just a, a service that brings you peace and comfort and faith. It's what uh, people is looking for. Cecilia Gámez, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith and we wish you all the very best as you head home to Mexico. Happy Christmas to you. Thank you for having me. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Prospero año y felicidad. Well, before we go, a quick mention for some of the religious services you can see and hear on RTE this Christmas Day. At 10 o'clock on Longwave and Digital Radio, there's a Eurovision Mass from the Church of the Sacred Heart in Lugano, in the Italian-speaking canton of Switzerland. And at 11, we have a Church of Ireland service of readings and carols from Sligo Grammar School. They'll be led by the school chaplain, Canon Patrick Bamber. And that's your Leap of Faith for this week. Do join us on Christmas Day from 8 o'clock in the morning for conversation, music and readings and much, much more. From our producer Sheila Gallen and me, Michael Cummin, happy Christmas and good night. Feliz